for those in the concentration, this lesson brings us full circle to our first lesson in September about foundational narratives as the hook for influence and subversion campaigns and as foundational narratives defining influence and subversive warfare at its most extreme. At its most extreme, the history of great power competition is the history of leaders strengthening their own foundational narratives while trying to subvert those of adversaries and competitors. For our relatively new spring students, this is an opportunity for us to go deeper into discussing the subconscious and the limbic system. This lesson is called Hacking the Subconscious. It was truncated from the original title of Hacking the Subconscious and the Limbic System. We've touched on the limbic system and subconscious in many lessons and case studies, and we'll look to some deeper cut case studies for this lesson in seminar to apply everything we've learned this semester with an extra emphasis, a little more cowbell on the subconscious and on the limbic uh, system and doing this in seminar. First about the readings, which cover in a bit more depth two case studies we've had before. This is in the interest of deep reflection and thought on what these case studies can teach us. Now that you've already thought through the pluses and minuses of certain Facebook and Big Oil, and to be clear, again, I have nothing for or against Big Oil. I drive a 2008 Prius, and I also own the, the uh, plurality of my investments in so-called Big Oil, such as ExxonMobil. So to be clear, I am not taking a position morally, ethically, or politically. Now that you've already thought through these case studies and seminar, I want us to dig a little deeper on how Facebook and Big Oil, in their branding or lobbying campaigns, may be hacking our subconscious and our limbic system. The oil and gas industry and the social media industry writ large are targets of the gov governments the world over. And conversely, some governments will only survive off of oil or survive on controlling social media within their borders. So today and throughout our careers, we are seeing subversive warfare in all directions amidst the, ba the backdrop of great power competition. And in our careers, we will see this subversive warfare turn it up to 11, like we have not seen in the history of the world. Companies and nations are fighting for survival. They fear annihilation, and what a drowning person does may be diabolical, may be creative, may be extreme, because they're gonna do whatever works. In subversive warfare, some of the best examples inside or outside a skiff are those you find in marketing, branding, and lobbying. In the Mecca, the platinum standard is political campaigns. This is because after marketing, branding, lobbying, and political campaigns, we can often interview people involved after enough time. We can get some information in the months following such campaigns. And I find that after about two decades, we can get the full story on intent, actors, actions, tradecraft, and importantly, how people attempt to target audiences, customers, or voters, subconscious and limbic system. One of the examples 
I'll provide in seminar will be that of a U.S. political campaign over two decades ago. While nothing is sensitive, I will have to swear you all in again to our Chatham House rules to protect the innocent in perpetuity. I'm going to talk through it. Nothing will be in writing, of course. We will also discuss national security case studies, but I want to emphasize again that there is also benefit in knowing all the bloody details when we look to branding, marketing, and political campaigns. For subversion warfare and national security, lines of effort are often firewalled from one another. Few know the big picture. And the secrecy and the subtlety and deception and diversion stories often last in perpetuity. Even with Freedom of Information Act requests and interviews and the keen eye of historians that don't buy into deception stories, very little historical methodology calls scholars to look into masterful influence and subversion, we're still only likely to get part of the story. For example, the Vatican, D.C., and labor unions campaign from 1982 to 1989 to subvert Soviet influence and control in Poland still today only allows us to see bits and pieces of the story. The entire scope of the subversion campaign is likely to have died with those that were senior enough at the time that knew the big picture who have since passed on. Even as some have left journals, we'll still never know the true scope of the planning and specifics of what happened. This is one of the several paradoxes of studying influence and subversion. How can we study successful subversion campaigns when the platinum standard is that even historians in the future will not recognize a purposeful and cogent and concerted influence or subversion campaign. Well, there are many ways around this paradox, from archi archival research to being able to see intelligence-wise what I like to call deafening silence, when systems and networks go dark, and I mean systems of people and networks of people go dark or stop talking for secrecy and subtlety reasons, or when there are major irregularities and macro patterns that no computer to date can detect, irregularities that point to a layered deception, subterfuge, or diversion story. But it's a heck of a lot easier to study political and corporate campaigns for themes, theories, frameworks of how subversion and influence works. I bring this up with a view towards going past NDU graduation. If subversion is a personal or professional interest of yours, there's lots to be learned from these private sector and political case studies. So back to the readings for a second. So that students who have a personal interest in the subconscious and limbic system, hacking the subconscious, hacking the limbic system, I will put curated select readings in a full bibliography into MS Teams. I don't want students to feel that they're getting gypped in any lesson. I have accumulated libraries of studies because I'm very passionate on how we think and how we behave. And in no way will I ever hold up a do not enter sign. For those looking for just the requisite two credits, I also don't want to overwhelm you with readings. Okay, so to the lesson, there are an infinite number of ways we can break down human thought, behavior, and belief. And despite new MRI technologies, 
in the last 20 years that provided a windfall of new understanding of how the brain works, putting many political philosophers and psychological warfare scholars out of the job, or at least they should be out of the job if they are holding on to antiquated and thoroughly debunked misassumptions of the brain. I'm looking at, despite 20 years of repeated and repeatable studies in neurobiology on how the subconscious and conscious minds work. We still know little, but each day we're finding out more. We cannot relegate belief and behavior to only one system or to only system one and system two of the brain as the thinking fast and slow author claims. We also cannot just consider the quote-unquote cognitive aspects of information as JP3-13 offers. This is without logic, without evidence, without reflection on any real-world case study. At best, this is a cop-out. At worst, this talks down to us, forces us to lose so much nuance that any influencer subversion campaign couldn't draw on anything meaningful by simply looking to cognition only. And of course, in addition to this, you have that connectivity and content. They love their alliteration and they love their triangles. Good for them. But at the end of the day, we have to realize the only important thing is affecting behavior. Everything else is subordinate to this. What we can say with some confidence is that brains do not function like computers. We are not ones and zeros. We do not think linearly. We do not have one thought at a time. We have networks of networks of signals that create and move in infinite numbers of ways simultaneously. We have to, for example, simplify stimuli to survive. And most of what we do is unconscious, automatic. What I have found helpful in the 23 and a half years in my, of my career in psychological influence warfare and subversive warfare is to think of three major systems, or at least three major phenomena of the brain that affects behavior. Although pop science would have us believe that these phenomena happen in different regions of the brain, what we know from hundreds of studies over the past 20 years is oftentimes these systems, or if you will, these three phenomena work in numerous parts of the brain. And these phenomena also likely overlap on many emotional and informational triggers. By pure coincidence, and I really mean this as a coincidence, these three systems sort of jibe with what we know of Socrates' ideas of the mind as told by Plato. So I'll use his ideas as a framework only, in spirit only, if you will. But I'm going to bring us to date with what we know about the brain with regards to repeated and repeatable neurobiology studies over the last 20 years. Socrates is to have spoken about the rational and logical mind. So this is the first system or phenomenon. I will simply refer to this as the rational mind. This is what we learn when we write our capstone or ISRP papers. This is what we learn in SLFC or any standard graduate introductory program. It's what you applied in your strategy courses and what you have used at other education institutions. 
this is in the realm of information and persuasion campaigns outside the charter of this course and this concentration. Of course, emotional hooks should still be part of these information and persuasion campaigns. But the rational mind, some call it the frontal cortex, is one that we don't discuss much in this course. It's something we already take care of in every single assignment in your core curriculum. It's logic. It's sound use of evidence. It's balancing a thesis and antithesis. It's a strict application of a methodology. It's trying to avoid fallacies and trying to do our best to strip ourselves or biases. Secondly, Socrates also spoke of the spirited or emotional self. Now I'd like to think, and this is a wild guess, I'd like to think or imagine for a second that perhaps he's trying to refer to something close to what we might call the subconscious, and I will call this the subconscious for learning purposes. Original foundational narratives, cognitive constructs, national mythologies, they affect our subconscious, how we view the world, what we do, what we decide. Hundreds of repeated and repeatable neurobiology studies over the past two decades suggest that 65 to 90% of our reality, decisions, so-called logic and outlook is defined by our subconscious. Even as future studies may reveal more about the brain, at the very least it's likely that what we today call the subconscious is, will still continue to be considered an important phenomenon to explain thinking decisions and most importantly behavior. The subconscious, and in some cases the limbic system, is often the approximate target of many subversion campaigns. Brains are not passive decoders. All action and thought is based off prediction. Prediction based off assumptions from foundational narratives. Cognitive dissonance occurs when core values are under attack. It causes physical pain. And of course, we have many warring identities from family to faith to education to clan to nation to values. Hence the title of the concentration of this course, Influence Warfare. Influence Warfare occurs in our minds, our families, and our communities every day. Then finally, third of all, from Socrates, we have the physical appetites, as he describes, through Plato. I'd like to simplify this and whittle it down to the limbic system. These are the impulses that we had long before the cognitive revolution that likely occurred about 68,000 BCE. This is the event that allowed our subconscious to cooperate, allowed us to cooperate beyond the clan. It allowed the first civilizations. It's our ability to tell abstract stories that in turn became foundational narratives that in turn affected our subconscious and all that we do, all that we think, and all that we decide. The limbic system, on the other hand, is primordial. While only humans are known to have the capacity for abstract stories that affect our subconscious, many animals share similar attributes of a limbic system. Some authors call the limbic system in humans our lizard brains for this reason. The limbic system is part of the brain involved in our behavioral and emotional responses, especially when it comes to behaviors we need for survival, feeding, reproduction, caring for our young, 
and fight or flight responses. You can find the structures of the limbic system buried deep within the brain, underneath the cere cerebral cortex, above the brainstem. The thalamus, the hypothalamus, and especially the major structures of the hippocampus and the amygdala. For this course and lesson, these studies are not required to understand these functions of the brain and how they work in concert with the rest of the brain. But I will offer a full bibliography for those that are curious and interested to really get down to the neural architecture of how the limbic system works. Important to subversion are four phenomena, which I've gone over before and which is in your primer entitled Five Pillars of Rivera Influence. So I'm not going to go into detail, but they include terror, disgust, trust, and isolation. It's this last one that I want to double down on in this lesson, isolation. The limbic system conflates shame and isolation and the fear of isolation with death. People are biologically tuned to want to be part of a community, and this can be exploited. Now, we have touched on isolation in our lessons on social media, radicalization of far-right terrorism, and conspiracy theories. And in just a couple seminars, we explore this a little more deeply upon student request. In some of your primer drafts, you have done brilliant and thoroughly realized and synthesized analysis of the phenomenon of isolation. And I hope you take a lead role in our seminar dialogue on this phenomenon in your respective seminars. I want to take this opportunity in this upcoming lesson to do a deeper dive on this phenomenon, on isolation, in addition to the other case studies we'll discuss. This will play an outsized role not only in the age of pandemics, I put a plural there for a reason that I'll explain, but in the modern era of disruptive technologies, AI, environmental changes, and migration patterns. This podcast is only prelude to the case studies we will attack in seminar. This is meant only as background for some and a refresher for those who have written on some of these points in your fall and spring written assignments. Thank you.